everyone, and welcome to the DevBright Podcast, a podcast about engineering and technology at BrightCore. And I am a host, Ben Hayden. And I'm Grant McConaughey. And today we have a special guest. Hi there, my name is Will Goulden, and I am the design director here at BrightCore. Yeah, and today, what are we, what are we doing here, gentlemen? Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about design. I think that's the idea. What what is design? Yeah, yeah. The the age old question. What is design? Yeah. Well, this is an engineering podcast, right? So, I mean, there's lots. Of, it's a little bit of everything. Yeah, that a is little what bit they of say. But you know, I there's a lot of engineers that are going to be listening. I assume. So I thought, like, kind of talking about how design and engineering intersect. Um, so you know, uh, like when Grant and I were talking about what we talked about today, uh, or what I would talk about today, we talked about like you know go into some things about like UI and things like that, but I thought it would be helpful to talk more big picture about design, I guess, like design thinking and how that applies to engineering, because I think good engineering and good design practices kind of have some overlap. So, yeah, I, I think uh, Ben was, was joking when he said, what is design? But I'm not joking when I say, what is design thinking? Yeah, so, I mean, it's, a, it's definitely a big topic. There's lots you can read out there about it but the, the way I like to think about it is that it's kind of like a a, a set of practices that you're, you're doing to try and get to the you know right answer and it kind of has a lot in in common with like you know newer approaches to to writing software and building products and you know in the digital space so uh, you know it's all about like iterating quickly prototyping getting stuff in front of your users making sure you know who your users are um, challenging your assumptions Things like that. What um, you mentioned, there's a lot out there that you can read. Are there any blogs or books you'd recommend that we can put in the show notes? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so there's a I don't know Lean UX and then Lean Startup is a kind of well Lean Startup is where a lot of these techniques are are written about in a in a big picture way. Like if you're starting a company, there's there's a lot there and it has a lot of overlap with design thinking. And Lean UX is in the same series, uh, and it, it's specifically about design. Um, so there's those. And then in terms of, like, uh, blogs, I think it, it's, it's uh, ideation.org, I want to say. I think that's cool. the name of it. Uh, yeah, I'll find the link, and we'll put it in the show notes. But There it is. And uh, you said something that was really uh, intriguing to me is, like, finding out who your users are. It sounds like there's, there's a practice there that might be uh, less common some people to understand yeah and this is something i've yeah i've been at brightcore for four years now grant and i we started around the same time me a little bit before grant and uh yeah. and this is something that i've learned along the way too um and it's it's this idea that you you always want to make sure you challenge your assumptions like everybody has assumptions about uh how people are using your software or using your uh your product and those assumptions are good to have because you you need some sort of shortcut for making decisions. That's that's what assumptions are really all about. But sure. it's you want to make sure you're validating those and and checking them out uh, fairly regularly to make sure that you aren't making some sort of critical mistakes in uh, how you're building your product. I mean, the most you know expensive part of building software is you know actually building it, creating the code, uh, writing all that, you know, creating the pages, creating the back end. So the more you can learn about your users 
faster, the better, because you're going to reduce the amount of mistakes that get shipped in the end. Um, and that's also why shipping frequently is important as part of the design process, because the more often you ship, the more often you're able to take what you did, learn about it, adapt it, and uh, really iterate on it. So kind of like Agile principles too. What kind of tools are available for learning more about users so that you can make these decisions? That's like, yeah, I mean, I don't know how many tools are available. It's it's really basic. It's just like, uh, you know, just making a point to talk to people, really. That's the, um, you know, just uh, re- reaching out, setting up, you know, meetings where they can kind of show you and walk you through how they're using your product. We do a ton of that internally at Brightcore on our design team. Would that be like usability testing? Yeah, usability testing is one, interviewing is another. Um, there's one called, uh, another technique called contextual inquiry, where literally you just, uh, you know, essentially job shadow a user for a couple hours. They just kind of walk you through their day. Um, there's lots of techniques like that. Uh, and, and where does, uh, you know, analytics and, and using data fit into this process of, of learning more about users? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And I think analytics, uh, that's something we, we at Brightcore haven't always had a super strong analytics setup. We're, we're getting that in a lot better spot now. Um, so I'm learning more about, you know, incorporating analytics. And I think the, uh, the real benefit of analytics is like, is twofold. One, it's like, uh, there are some things that are just not conducive to what we call qualitative research, right? Like this idea that you're going to go out and talk to people. Um, one is like, uh, hey, we want to get rid of this feature. We think nobody's using it. That's our, you know, assumption. Okay, well, analytics can tell us exactly how many people are using it, and in some cases, which users. And that's that's really valuable. And that's going to be hard to learn from, you know, interviews, because you could talk to, uh, you know, 90 people, and you could miss the one person that's, that's using it in your user base, but it's really important for them. Or, uh, you know, some other edge cases like that. Analytics are also really important for, you know, based on how how your organization uses data, uh, it's really, it's kind of a mindset, so mindset shift, uh, right? Because a lot of companies are data reactive. I mean, a lot of places have gotten that way in their use of data, where they get a number and they see it and they go, oh, shoot, we should do something about this because the data is telling us this is an issue. Where, and that's, you know, that's better than not using data at all. But I think where the real benefit and potential of analytics comes in is using data to drive the decision-making. So instead of reacting to that data, you're using that data in an earlier stage to say, okay, the data is telling us this, what does that mean? Or how can we use that metric as a benchmark for for our success in the future? Like uh, a really good example with the design is, hey, if we redesign this page, can we, you know, for an app like Brightcore, uh, we actually want less time on on page. Uh, E-commerce site would want more time on page, but we want less time on page. So if we redesign this page, can we reduce uh, time on page by 20%? And how would we do that? And that's kind of like leads to kind of more bottom up product decisions and, and thinking than like, you know, somebody on top saying, hey, we need to add this feature. Oh, okay, but why? Why are we adding that feature? And really when you get down to it, it's this idea of using uh, data to, to measure the success and kind of drive the ideas for how to, how to change your product. Yeah, it it almost sounds like a way to remove bias from the equation. 
You know, it's easy to, to say, I don't think anybody uses that feature, but the data will tell the real story about whether someone is using that feature or whether no one's using that feature. And it, it can kind of pull that out and make that make that known to everyone that like, we don't have to have an opinion one way or the other. The data will just tell us what's happening. Yeah, and you know, people are always going to have opinions about it, but it does kind of help. Uh, it can kind of help unstick things, right? Like if you're going back and forth yeah. about something and it's just like, you know, each person's opinion, it's easy for the more persistent person to just win because they just keep, you know, kind of pushing on it. But having the data can kind of short circuit it and uh, kind of lead to something more um, like productive. So, you know, you've mentioned design thinking, but I'm wondering, like, what is the application of, of design thinking to an engineer? Like, what do they need to know about this? Yeah, I, I think a, I think the, the thing about design thinking is the, the kind of concepts it emphasizes, right? Like rapid iteration, um, you know, ideally shipping stuff quickly. That's, that's something that I think a lot of engineers are passionate about. Um, I think design thinking, when it's done well, also encourages bottom-up decision-making uh, in an organization, which I think is something that engineers also value. Uh, you know, this idea that, um, you know, really we want to focus on on the outcomes and not the output. That's like a, a phrase you'll hear associated with both like uh, lean startup type principles and with design thinking. It's this idea that, you know, uh, velocity is a, you know, that's a very common measurement for lots of teams, but do we, you know, do we really want velocity to always be increasing? I mean, you know, the team's doing more work and getting more done, but what's the actual out, outcome of that for our end users? Like the ideal thing would be that we do less work and we have a bigger impact on the product. Like that would be awesome. Then we could have more time off or whatever, or have more time to do other cool stuff and, you know, things. So that's, design thinking has a lot of overlap, I think, with kind of the, uh, at least with the my experience with the way good engineers kind of think about shipping functionality and, you know, improving an app and that sort of thing. Yeah. How would you, you know, you mentioned we want to be shipping more software and providing value rather than just tracking whether velocity goes up or down like that, that number alone. Um, how do you track that? How do you quantify that kind of stuff? Like features and value that we're providing? Yeah, it's, that's, it's definitely the hard part, right? Um, Part of it comes from having a robust kind of analytics setup. You know, you, you have to have the, the raw information there. You have to have that baseline of things to know that you're you're making improvements. So some of it can come from that. Um, other pieces can come from having, you know, really integrated, uh, like, even like uh, satisfaction scores on a per page basis. I've seen some apps do that. We don't do that at Brightcore, but you know, offer, offering users a way to leave feedback on not just your your whole product, but even on specific features or you know uh, different pieces of the application. And you know, so if you have different ways of on the analytics side of collecting that information, either things like user feedback or more quantitative measurements like time on task. So okay, from the point they go to this page, how long does it take them to click through these five steps needed to do this task? Okay, on average, it takes them three minutes. Well, how could we reduce that to two? And, you know, then that can be your measurement of success there. Um, and that kind of gets away from the, the top-down approach of, oh, implement feature X, when, you know, that's really just our assumption of what we think is going to improve time on page. The team that's working on that, and the engineers working on that may have some wildly different ideas of how to do that. Maybe we don't need another feature. Maybe we need better performance on the page to reduce load times. Uh, you know, 
those if you kind of shift into that that output uh, that outcome mindset as opposed to that output mindset, it can really uh, you know lead to some interesting things, and it makes teams feel empowered for you know to improve the product and make things better. So there's this term called design system. What makes for a good one? So design systems are are an interesting piece of this, right? So we were kind of talking about like big picture, um, you know, design process and how that how that affects things. Design systems are have kind of gone hand in hand with this trend of of design thinking, and I I think in some ways it's it's part of the idea that you know I I think designers are are trying to free up more time to do this kind of work that we were just talking about. And I think design systems are one way to do that because a, a design system, you know, so basic definition, right? A design system is a set of reusable components. Uh, usually they're visual components. They also usually have some associated functionality. So, you know, your design, a typical design system would have components for buttons and forms and tables and card displays and all that kind of good stuff. So a design system is all about having that in a consistent, uh, you know, uh, usable format so that, so that your engineering teams don't have to worry about every time they come to design, they say, well, okay, how are we going to do a table this time when it's really, you know, A, you want the consistency, and B, it saves a ton of time if people can reuse that code. And right. There, design systems are pretty much everywhere now, but they are, uh, they're still really useful. So uh, we have one at Brightcore. It's at ui.brightcore.com. And put that link in the show notes too. It's uh, definitely a work in progress, but, uh, that's, uh, but it's working well so far and across all our teams. And I think the, the second half to your question, Ben, right, was what, what makes a good one, right? Right. So like I said, the, the one that we have is kind of a work in progress. And I think that's actually an important bit of what makes a good one is you, you want it to be something that's going to be used, right? So um, that, I guess like technically, I can get technical, right? You can absolutely get technical. Please, please do. Get so, into deets. So uh, when, we, when we were looking at... Uh, we knew we wanted a design system for some of the new product work that we were doing. And this was what Grant, like two years ago, something like that. Yeah. That sounds about right. Two years. And, and we decided that, you know, uh, the engineering teams decided that Vue.js was, was really a good call compared to like react or, um, you know, angular. So we hitched our wagon on the front end to Vue.js and we kind of had this decision to make of, well, do we roll our own design system or do we try and reuse something? Um, it seemed like to me that rolling our own would kind of have a lot of comp complicating factors and that, you know, kind of reinventing the wheel, um, you know, it would let us make it exactly what we wanted, but it seemed like it would kind of interfere with that ability to, to deliver things quickly. And I was kind of thinking through this process that we wanted to get something in the hands of engineers so that it could get established and be used. So what we ended up doing actually is um, basing our design system off Element UI, which is a component library uh, out there open source. And uh, we actually ended up forking it, which was a pretty big decision at the time. We were kind of nervous about that. Like, oh, do we want to, you know, make break that connection and uh, kind of disassociate the two? But it's actually worked out pretty well and it's allowed us over time to kind of make the design system our own, but not in a way where we had to undertake this huge project to 
to write it all from scratch. So that's what we ended up doing, and I think that's a, that's worked pretty well. What is a what's a good strategy for maintaining a design system over time for making changes to it and keeping it up to date? Um, I think it's a it's a good point that you kind of mentioned earlier that you know the the design system is a work in progress. And to me, it seems like it will always be a work in progress. We'll always be tweaking and improving and adding components and, and making it better over time. But I'm wondering what that looks like uh, on a successful design system. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And when you're thinking about a design system and, and how to maintain it, one, one of the things that, that we've really had to think about on, on both sides of the equation is, you know, we have product designers working on mockups for all these different pieces of the application. And we also have engineers who are implementing their work. And something that we have to think through is how do we make sure that when engineers get a mock-up, it's clear uh, what, what would be changing with the design system and what's just an implementation detail that they're doing. And that's, that's kind of a hard thing to balance. And sometimes, uh, especially if a designer isn't used to working in a design system, you know, they may have something... Uh, in their mock-up that's a little bit inconsistent. Maybe they, uh, for whatever reason, they, they used a component from the design system uh, in their mock-up, but then they tweaked it a little bit and you know kind of forgot about that uh, change and that wasn't ever communicated. That can make it really hard because the engineer's first instinct, which is great, you know, they, they want to make the design look exactly right, is to you know override the design system in this one case and make it look different. And that's that's really not what we want, actually. Like, if a, if a design is inconsistent, we want to have a conversation about that and figure out, hey, is that a change to the design system or is that just an oversight? If it's a change to the design system, why are we changing it in that way? How would it affect other instances of it? Is this some type of configurable prop or is it a global change to how that component renders across uh, all use cases? So some things that we've actually done uh, uh, over time, we, we use the uh, GitHub project board uh, we have our design systems in a repo in GitHub, and we use the uh, project Kanban boards they have for organizing issues. And that's how we kind of uh, both collect suggestions from engineers, but also proposals from designers on how the system should change. And then we can kind of evaluate them and either accept them and queue them up or reject them with the reason why. That, that actually leads me to my next question, which is about flexibility of the design system. I mean, how flexible do we want the design system to be versus how rigid do we want it to be? Um, you know, it, does, it, does the design system need to be opinionated? And, and if so, how far can you deviate from that? Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's definitely an interesting topic. And I think that the answer really depends on the context of your organization. Um, you know, for us, we're I mean, we're a large company, but we're, we're not like a, a, a huge thing like, a, you know, Facebook or WordPress. And so for us, our design system is really going to be used by a small number of developers. And it's um, something that because of that, uh, we want it to be as consistent as possible. And when there are differences in, uh, in how a component is used, we really want those differences to be meaningful to the application. So a really good example of that is a while back, um, a designer proposed a change to our breadcrumb component. And it was going to be a different look of the breadcrumb in this one particular case. And it was like, well, 
you know, that's really just to get a different look and feel. It's not really accomplishing anything for the user. It's not like there's a, a, a real reason for those to be different. So in those cases, we, we kind of err on the side of having consistency um, because that's just going to make the app uh, work better, seem a little bit easier to use. And because if you add all those up, all those little inconsistencies, you can get two portions of the app that look uh, fairly different. So and that's what we want to avoid. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so, uh, so this is getting a, a little bit outside of design, um, you know, and designs, we've talked about design process and design systems. And I thought for the last bit of our conversation today, uh, it would be kind of fun to talk about CSS. There's, there's this, uh, running joke that, uh, that CSS knowledge that I'm, I'm one of the CSS experts at Brightcore, which I don't necessarily agree with, but, uh. I thought it would be kind of fun to put that idea to the test with a little CSS quiz for uh, Grant oh, and Ben here. Oh no! <laughs> so uh, float float left. Sorry, yep. keep going. No, no, no. Float left. That's that's not bad. That was actually the answer to one of my questions. Um, Are you oh, serious? Man. Now I have to figure out which one. No, it is. it's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. that would be Sorry, a, keep going. that would be a pretty good quiz is to give you the answer and then y'all figure out which question that actually yeah. goes with. Right? <laughs> yeah, we need to do this Jeopardy style. Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, so anyways, the first one, and these have not, for the audience at home, these are not provided ahead of time. Uh, nope. So what is a media query and how are they used? I think I know this one. I think I conceptually get it. Do you want to go or do you want me to go? Why don't you go, Ben? Does it have to do with the device? It's CSS that is rendered depending on what device it is? Yes, that's right. That's, that's yeah. mostly right. Grant, anything else to add? Um, no, no, I mean, I mean, mostly that, you know, I, I think you can, you can set like different widths and, and have CSS apply at different, at different widths of the, of the viewport and so on. But yeah, that's go ahead basically. and throw in viewport. That just shows yeah. that Grant would have had, a I just wanted to me. say the word, I wanted to say the word viewport. So it's like, wow, he, he's my smart. favorite nineties band. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, both of those both of those pieces are right. So good job. Uh, yeah, it's basically CSS that conditionally will uh, render based on something, and it can and it's a properties of the device or the browser. So uh, so width is a big one. Um, that's what it's most commonly used for is responsive design. That's kind of what allows responsive design to to work. Um, but you can also there's also some really interesting ones like uh, there's you can do print, which allows you to when you know the page is printed certain styles show up so a lot of a lot of places Neat. will use that to like hide the the header and remove background colors and stuff so it doesn't take up a lot of printer ink that kind of thing um you can also do device orientation that's another interesting one so it'll let you know if it's in landscape or uh portrait mode so um okay next one is uh this one is probably going to be a little bit harder uh what was one of the first examples of component based or object oriented css like css history oh, wow here uh you have moo css like moo tools no that's not a right. joke Green. oh is joke. Is it, all right is it... <laughs> so you don't know <laughs> no it... i have no clue <laughs> i didn't I, it... I didn't want to assume it was a joke i thought that was maybe a real answer i wasn't sure um would that be like less yeah that's a preprocessor it's a little different. So, okay, so that's completely different. Yeah, yeah. Ob you're you're really wrong. So that's trying to be nice. So, okay, it's called the media object. Is that something you all have heard about before? No. So, okay, so back in 2010, Nicole Sullivan 
the media object was one of the first examples of CSS that was written to be reused as a component. And it was the idea of, I mean, it's a really common pattern. You have like a little picture next to some text, so like a, a mugshot and then like text to the right of it, you know, or like, you know, you're posting a profile update, you have your profile and then you have the message next to it. That, that component was, she kind of came up with the idea of, the way sites used to work before that is they would literally re rewrite that line of CSS hundreds of times and, you know, over the span of an app. And she came up with the idea of, hey, let's abstract this out into a visual pattern that we can reuse. So that was a really big kind of uh, change in how CSS was written. It's a, it's a big uh, zero for both of us there. Yeah, it's okay. We're, we're, we're at 1-0. Well, I guess y'all are both tied at 1. So right. this, yeah. this is the tiebreaker. Um, this is probably in between the two in terms of difficulty. I don't know. Um, okay. what is box sizing in CSS and how, and bonus points, how do different values affect it? Box. Oh man. I, I get, knew this. Get it grant. So they, I, I know that the, the value you want to use is box sizing, box sizing border box. That, that is right. I mean, and usually, yes. Uh, what is that? It has something to do with padding, I think. Margin yes, or padding. Yes, like it, you're getting close. Are you like uh, really like on the outside? Padding's on the inside. This? I think. Oh, okay. I think it impacts whether padding or margin, or whether margins like overlap with each other in the DOM. Like if two if two elements have have margin that would overlap with one another, then no, I don't think that's it. Yeah, I, I don't remember. I I, yeah. I know of it. That is, you you were so close, and then you got further away with the margin thing. But yeah, it's whether or not. Um, so you know the the measurements of a box in in the DOM. It's a uh, in the boxes. You know the uh, each element. What's on in the, the page. box, Will? Yeah, <laughs> it's a uh, it's whether the uh, width and height uh, includes the padding and border or not. So. You want to use border box most of the time because that's what most people expect padding being part of the uh, dimensions. But uh, sometimes content box is, is helpful. There's edge cases. It gets really complicated. But border box is what you want most of the time. So Grant, I don't know. Gotcha. That's like, I think you win with like... I'll take my half point. Yeah, yeah. One and a half points. Just enough to eke out a victory. Yeah. I'll take a, a tenth of a point. That's fine. I... Uh, I think my CSS knowledge is, is enough to know to set that to border box and to not know why. So, yeah, that's about how I've done I, it. I am definitely an engineer that operates better with a design system in place. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's the moral of, of that CSS quiz. This is why we need opinionated design systems that just do the right thing. Yeah, there you go. So, thanks, design team at Brightcore. Yeah, so that probably about does it for today. Thank you so much, Will, for uh, schooling us on some CSS and design. Yeah, thank um, you guys. It was a lot of fun uh, coming by and talking. Yeah, we'll have you back and you can uh, blow our minds some more. Um, but you can follow the podcast on Twitter at DevBrightPod or me uh, at Davey Hayden. And do not send me any CSS questions. I will fail them. Follow me on Twitter at G McConaughey and Will. Yeah, I don't have a Twitter. I'm kind of old school. Now, okay. Right? So <laughs> all right. So I like you can, that. You can send Will a carrier pigeon out to his <laughs> house yep. in the country, and uh, he'll get it next year. It'll be fine. Real, real live tweets. Uh, and that get it. Uh, like that it. is it for this episode of Devright, and we will.
we'll see you next time.